Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 44 of The Hilo, the weekly news, pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderson and Pandora Sykes. In today's episode, we will be discussing the new Minister for Loneliness, the importance of smear tests, well-intentioned racism, quote-unquote, and why you're not an adult until you're 25. Kicking off with smear tests... I know that's probably not how you imagined this episode to begin. Pandora and I both separately read a news story this week and both wrote it down as sort of top of the agenda to speak about this week. A leading cervical cancer charity, Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust, has released new research that shows one of the main reasons women miss their smear test is because of embarrassment and body shame. And I have to say, I wasn't surprised. I was. I thought that the stats had flipped really positively since... Jade Goody died, which was, mm. how long ago was that? Seven years? Mm, about seven about years. Because she had the most monumental effect on women going to get smear tests. Um, the, you know, the, her very sad passing really did affect how uh, aware women were. And the NHS sends out those letters, thank mm. God, because I freely admit I have booked, I've had two smear tests, one when I was 25 and one yeah. when I was 28. Do you have yeah. them every three every years? Every three years, yeah. And both of them I booked as soon as I got my letter and I'm I'm sad to hear that 25% are still not Well the reason that. it's so sad is that it's it's so preventable. I spoke to Kate Sanger at Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust who told me a little bit about the research, what you can actually expect from a smear test and why they're so vital. One of the things that did come out of this research overwhelmingly was embarrassment with a third of young women saying that they delayed or not attended because they were embarrassed and this came down to embarrassment about body shape about their vulva looking normally, smelling normally. Just some really worrying kind of stats that are really stopping people from going for this really important test. As an expert in this field, what would you tell these women who have these fears? Health professionals, they do hundreds, if not thousands of tests. They don't care what pants you're wearing, they don't care what you look like, what you smell like. They just care if you don't attend. And if you are worried or you're concerned or you don't like your body, then they're aware, like, talk to your nurse, say, I feel really uncomfortable about this, really awkward. Um, you can wear a skirt, like wear a long skirt, which might make you feel a bit easier. They will give you a bit of sort of paper to put over your lap, like a little cloth, which will give you a bit of modesty as well. But do talk, talk to your nurse because it's their job to sort of help to make you feel as comfortable as possible during this test. And I think people fear that the result of the smear test is like the result of an STI test of either you have it or you don't. But really, there are many stages of monitoring cell development. When people talk about fear, there's both fear of the test and then, yeah, fear of the result. Lots of people think it's a test for cancer, and a smear test isn't a test for cancer. It's a test that can prevent cancer. So by going to it, it's basically looking for cells in your cervix which are abnormal, and if they are abnormal cells, whether they need treatment or not before they potentially could develop into cancer. Um, Around 3,000 women are diagnosed with cervical cancer every year in the UK, and about 5 million are invited for screening. 
Mm. So you can really see it's, it's not a really common cancer. It is a rare cancer, and that's because of screening. Screening can prevent it. And the majority of screening of um, smear test results are actually normal. Um, over 90% come back as normal. And those that don't come back as normal, those that are abnormal, are generally you might need a small procedure, just a tiny, a few cells taken away to then prevent them potentially developing into cancer. Thank you so much to Kate for talking to me. That was really educational and useful. And my top tip for a smear test is make sure that you do yoga breathing, do deep yoga breathing. And I actually always have a bit of a natter with the nurse because it means like, don't Humanizes think about it. it. Yeah, and also it really is a matter of, of, of seconds sometimes rather than minutes. What have you been up to this week, Panda? I have been mainly horrified at the Larry Nasser trial. So for those of you who haven't been following this more than 100 women have given evidence at the US Olympic gym squad former doctors sentencing for sexual assault last week and 20 more have apparently come forward in the last few days so that's over 120 women who um, alleged that the doctor sexually assaulted them and the allegations are extensive and horrific there was this amazing moment though where Larry Nasser wrote a six page letter to the judge saying that he couldn't handle the mental impact of watching all these women as they gave evidence in front of him and Judge Aquilina coolly and very sassily and totally rightly replied you spent thousands of hours perpetrating sexual assault on minors spending five or six days listening to them is significantly minor considering the thousands of hours of pleasure you had ruining their lives wow the sheer numbers and I think there'll be a lot more now coming out of sport won't they sport will be having Mm. their own me too Mm moment. On a much lighter note, I received the best press release of my life um, this week uh, that revealed that an envelope containing five Smarties, a single bottle of beer, a tea bag and a butt plug are some of the worst leaving gifts people have ever received. Where is this going? (laughs) The best leaving gifts, and I'm not sure I agree with this, leachy.com. The best leaving gifts apparently include (laughs) an iPhone 8, a wedding dress, Flying lessons and a vibrator. I'd be happy with all those. Not flying lessons, I've got to say. Would you be happy to use an iPhone 8 whilst wearing a wedding dress, using a vibrator and actually, taking a flying lesson? Actually, I wouldn't like the vibrator. I wouldn't like that. I mean, I'm amazed that you even had to think. I would. <laughs> On second thoughts, I'm not sure a vibrator No, because initially it's like, oh, that's a bit lol, isn't it? But actually it's not. I would, I would find that more fun. I don't think I'd want a wedding dress either. They're all awful, other than the iPhone, actually. You're completely right. Can we talk about press releases for a moment? My inbox is exploding. By the way... Dolly's been fighting back. I've told her it's a waste of her time to reply to an automated press release saying, I don't want a hot beverage, thank you very much. So she insists. That woman... So this woman sent me a series... she's not an actual woman. Well, I You have to stop treating her work that out. I got a series of insane emails from her being like, Hey... Fancy a latte? I'd like us to put our heads together and talk about our businesses and how we can help each other. So then last night I was lying in bed and I couldn't get to sleep and I started thinking about these emails that I sent this woman basically telling her to leave me alone. And I felt riddled with anxiety and I was like, today I need to send her a message She's to say, not a real person. sorry for snapping at you. And then I just got another one being like, hey, thanks for the reply. So it obviously, as you said, it's just a bot. I think there might be a piece in this. I think there might be a do- <laughs> Dolly discovers bots on the Dolly mail. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of um, Call Your Girlfriend, which I used to listen to a lot and then I sort of forgot. I don't know if you ever have that with podcasts. You 
come away and then yeah. you sort of forget what you've been listening to. So I was listening to a lot of back episodes um, and I was super interested to listen to the one about Time's Up. So a few weeks ago now where they reveal, away from the black dresses, because that's obviously been discussed um, at length, how much each celebrity donated to the actual legal fund where, unlike the frocks, real difference can be made for women and minorities, not just Hollywood. Have you checked out the list? No. It's really interesting. I have to say, I was really shocked by how little some celebrities gave. Read millionaires, you know, every single one of them basically is a millionaire. Mm. Um, and how much others donated. Taylor Swift donated a million. So hate her as some may. This woman seriously dumps money into good causes time and time again. You're putting she, that in the Taylor Swift box, Swift box aren't Swift you? box. For next time I'm slagging off Taylor Swift. Well, I have to. I think giving a million is pretty impressive. She was yeah, one of only about three people that gave that sum. Oprah gave that sum as well. That's a small change for Oprah. Amy Poehler donated $10,000. Michelle Williams and Jennifer Connelly donated $500. As did mm. Greta Gerwig, who's been in a Woody Allen film. Have to say... Think they could have all given five hundred dollars is quite a lot though. If you think about it, for no. our, for us that would be a sizable donation. Yeah, Dolly, they're not us. But I wonder how much they actually have. Oh, they've got plenty. They've got yeah. all of those actors have plenty. But interestingly, WME donated half a million on Michelle Williams's behalf because she right. was famously paid one and a half million less than Mark Wahlberg for reshoots. Right? Did you read about that? So Kevin Spacey was fired from all the money in the world mm. and they drafted in Christopher Plummer last minute so they had oh, to yes, reshoot. Yes, oh, yes. And they were told that they wouldn't be paid. They would just be given a cursory $80 a day. Michelle Williams said fine, but Mark Wahlberg went, went and negotiated $1.5 more. So there was this huge outcry. Mm. Um, arguably, she could have demanded that and didn't, but still, mm. obviously, given the situation we are, it's a very sensitive territory. Mm. Mark Wahlberg then donated to Time's Up one point five million in Michelle Williams's honour. And obviously Michelle in the first place is only given five hundred dollars. So all these people donating in her honour, she ends yeah. up donating the most of all. <laughs> anyway, on the subject of Call Your Girlfriend, I, I love how eloquent it is. I've got to be honest, those likes are driving me mad. There's about a hundred likes in every single episode and it got me thinking like Carrie Bradshaw about the etymology of the filler word like and I googled it and I found a piece written I was about to say last year but 2016 is no longer last year on the Atlantic and I'm going to link to it in the show notes just for any other archaic pedants who are interested just to name check a few other things that I've been enjoying this week Fashion Unzipped the fashion podcast from the Telegraph produced by our own fair CJ who's gone a little bit red I was about to say it's the brainchild of CJ but that's probably too Not technically the brainchild <laughs> if you like smart discussion about I say fashion features it's it's you know kind of commentary around fashion so mm. social commentary around fashion so not just what to wear, and but why you're wearing it and how you're wearing it and who's wearing it and what that says. And they're a really smart bunch, the fashion editors there. So I've been really enjoying that. And I've also discovered Riverdale on Netflix, which I've learned is massively cult. It's this teen drama and all of the leads in it have like six million followers on Instagram. Anyway, I've, I've completely fallen down the Riverdale hole and I can guarantee we will now get emails from fellow... Riverdale fans because it seems to have this yeah. really um, I realised why I recoiled a bit yesterday when you told me about Riverdale because I think in my head it went to Emmerdale I don't think there's any reason to recall from Emmerdale either 
Very gentle. Isn't you like an Emmerdale fan? I haven't watched it, but I'm still trying to get into The Archers. I just haven't quite figured out when it's on. That's very good for you for the next uh, couple of months. <laughs> very good for you. It'll do you a lot of good. In other news that's diverted me this week, there has been a ruckus at Couture Week. Bet you Ooh, didn't see that one coming. No. Did you see the stuff about Miroslava Duma? So the Russian oligarch's wife and the fashion tech entrepreneur Instagrammed a picture of a note that she received from her fellow Russian, the couture designer, Ulyana Sajenko, that said, to my N-words in Paris, which was pinned to a bunch of roses. Oh, dear. Yeah, the response was immediate and furious. Miroslav has already been removed from her role as a board member of children's lifestyle business called The Tot, which they announced oh, in yeah, statements. Yeah, I did read that, yeah. And both of them are unsurprisingly being abused on their Instagram accounts. Oliana was also criticised for her apology, which she removed actually very quickly, which included the words, as they so often seem to these statements, I love Kanye West... Anyway, she's since deleted that. So that means she's okay to use that word because... So, I mean, obviously this post... Obviously that note was written and this piece... This post was shared on Instagram, not in bad faith, but it does just remind us all to be conscious and thoughtful in our decision-making when it Mm. comes to language and Mm. social media and beyond. And even though it wasn't shared in bad faith... It really chimes for me with this whole well-intentioned racism thing that I mentioned mm. in the intro that's been going viral this week since journalist Carol Malone said to the broadcaster and barrister Afua Hirsch last week that they were having a roundtable discussion and I put the clip on my Twitter and she, Carol told Afua that racism wasn't racism if it was well-intentioned. I posted on, that clip as well. It on, was extraordinary. On Sky's weekly discussion but show, I the think pledge. That's, that's a lot of British people have that attitude. And I, I think, think this is a. I think that's a really good phrase to take and dissect mm. and apply to situations like Miroslava and Oliana because they're probably feeling pretty fucking awful right now. Mm. I'm not saying they don't deserve to feel awful, but it came from this thoughtless place of naivety which is what's so frustrating Mm. because those things feel so avoidable Mm. they are so avoidable that's exactly it but people time time keep doing it again laura weir the editor of es magazine tweeted me saying that afua has written a piece um for this week's evening standard magazine wow i'd love to read that yeah so pick that up if you can and of course again on a lighter note because this is the high low it's ups and it's downs we've had the oscar nominations christ we're in the thick of award seasons aren't we we've had yeah The Screen Actors Guild Awards, the NTAs, that's the National Television Awards in the UK, and now the Oscars are coming up. (laughs) I don't know if we call the NTAs in the same bracket as as the Oscars. The NTAs also should just be renamed the Anton Deck Awards. (laughs) No, it was Dermot hosting... um... No, it's in they just win every year, they win everything. (laughs) I'm most interested, as usual, in the best actress award at the Oscars. Side note, I thought we used the term actors now. I didn't think actress you was should. You should, yeah, yeah, but on the like Osc- on the website that I read the nom- maybe it wasn't the official Oscars website to be fair. It said best actress, and I thought, hold on, I'm not sure we use that. Anymore. No, that means little actor. That Any- ain't okay. Anyway, the nominees are Saoirse Ronan, Margot Robbie, Meryl Streep, Sally Hawkins, and Frances McDormand. Who do you want to win? Oh, I don't know. I feel like you love Sally Hawkins. I do love Sally Hawkins. How do you know that? Because she's sort of. Intense. I'm so predictable. You predict everything about me now. 
<laughs> I was talking about Bill Nye <laughs> once and I said how I think that we're soulmates. And then I said, oh, but actually, I don't know if we are because he just likes sitting in dark rooms, smoking, listening to Bob Dylan. And you said tentatively, but that sounds quite a lot like you, no? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm. Do you know? I'm most excited about Greta Gerwig um, for the for Ladybird. For Ladybird, I just loved Ladybird. I feel that so much. I've got, I feel a real pressure at the moment to watch all these films. You must watch Ladybird. There's so many, but there's also so many series I want to watch as well. I'm feeling cultural overload. Yeah, the I pressure of cultural feeling. overload. Speaking of cultural overload, what have you been ingesting this week? I've been listening to the audiobook of So You've Been Publicly Shamed mm. by John Ronson, which is a classic, yeah. which I've read a lot about and sort of shamelessly quoted from, um, which is so shamelessly, lazy. Shamelessly quoted from a book called Publicly Shamed. Yeah. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, which is lazy and journalistic, but... I'm just loving it. I'm actually listening to the audiobook. I've never listened to an audiobook before. I went and did some work with Audible and they gave me these little Audible vouchers. I'm glad credits. you're working it. <laughs> I want to get into audiobooks, actually. They're great. It's great. It's not like reading. I was going to say, I don't, like I have to say, part of me dies a bit, though, when people do listen to the audiobook instead of reading something. Yeah. I still think it's um, it's just like listening to a really great audio series. Like, like It's like, for me, when I listen to it, it feels like... I'm listening to The Butterfly Effect. It doesn't feel like I'm mm. experiencing it as a book. But mm. I think that's totally fine. And a lot of people don't have time to read. You know, reading is luxury for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I'm just loving it. There's this brilliant... Have you read it? Yes. Mm. My favourite um, uh, strand of the whole thing is this sort of irreverent strand about something very serious about Max Mosley, who was the big F1 boss. Yeah, he's a strange character in that book. Yeah, and he is a kind of aging millionaire who sued the news of the world when they ran a piece about him allegedly having a Nazi orgy. Mm -hmm. And actually, the intricacies of it would show that, yes, he is into hardcore S&M, yes, he hired sex workers, and yes, there were military overtones to his sexual play, but actually, to, to force the Nazi thing on him... Um, was wildly unfair and particularly people put that on him because of the context of his hideous father who was Yes, I was going to say, but obviously the Moles... So the Moles it, was a, it was a very complicated thing and I've always been really interested in Max Mosley because when I was doing my journalism MA, Roy Greenslade, who's a Guardian journalist, was one of our lecturers and he set us this really big piece of work where we had to argue the boundaries and rights and wrongs of that particular case against the news of the world and where our opinion stood and that media case. So I've always been very interested in it. And he just seems like a man, he just seems like very honest. And he's, John Ronson in the book looks a lot at why his public shaming, he managed to kind of come out of it fairly unscathed and he's really fascinated as to why that is. And they have this like epistolary email relationship and Max Mosley continuously calls him Ron. <laughs> which I just love. Instead of John. Instead of I John. Think, and actually this isn't really something I considered until, because I read it when it first came out, but I'm thinking about this now retrospectively. And what I would say is that you are vastly more likely to recover from a public shaming if you are independently wealthy. Yeah, he said that. Masculine. Male, that's exactly what he and said. And socially secure. And by that, I mean that Max Mosley exists in a sort of social stratum away from public censor. Yeah. It's not like the woman... I mean, there's also that awful case of that woman sending that 
um, tweet just before she got just, on the plane. Justine Sacker, yeah. Saying, I'm off to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Is that what she said? Just kidding, I'm just white, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the main yeah. threads that and she, he explores um, and about how hers, this woman's life was ruined. Yeah, hers is actually one of the saddest to read, yeah. I think. No, it's a brilliant it's, book. I think and it's it, as can, relevant now yeah. as it was then and will continue, like the vagina monologues, but in a very different way. Yeah. It's be relevant probably in 20 years. Uh, well. I agree 100%. And actually, it's... Um, it's really changing. You know, you read a book and it, you can feel your brain and your mind literally it, changing yes. shape. I yeah. can feel my mind expanding. I felt like that with Blink by Malcolm Gladwell when you just have some, someone just puts it so simply and yeah. sis, almost sort of systematically, you know, yes. it's quite mathematical in the way it all puzzles into Yeah, it's quite, he, he's very irreverent and funny, but he's almost academic in the way that he researches stuff. And I think, um, you know, so much of it interests me, the fact that, because I've been guilty of piling on, definitely, and John Watson throughout it says he's definitely in the past, before he's examined this stuff, been guilty of hopping onto a shaming of someone who's fucked up. And it's really made me rethink why I do that. And I think a lot of the time the reason why we do that is we all live in fear of being found out. Everyone everyone has feels like they have a secret self or a secret life or that they have the capacity to get something wrong. So I think we live so in fear of it that when we see someone else doing it, we just want to distract from us. So we just kind of throw ourselves on them. So, yeah, I'm really loving that. I'd love to um, read him on Lena Dunham, actually. Yeah, so would I. So would I. Really, really intelligent man. I've also been listening to Peter Morgan, who's the creator of The Crown. Mm. There was a great interview with him on Fresh Air, and he also talks about Frost Nixon mm-hmm. and The Queen. And did you ever watch The Queen with Helen Mirren? Yes. When did it come out? Not sure, maybe five years ago. Yeah, yes, it's, it did. it's a really, really good film, and it follows the fallout in Buckingham Palace in the weeks after Princess Diana's death and tries to explain why the Queen behaved in a way that the public found to be cold cold Mm -hmm. and disengaged. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting interview with Peter Morgan because I didn't realise, obviously he's written a lot about the royal family, I didn't realise just quite how research heavy these pieces Mm. of work are when he's pieced them together and he basically says he has 10 researchers and 10 researchers and they have to go and speak to as many people as close to the royal family at certain points in their life as possible and then he said that's kind of the closest you can get that is the closest you can get I'd be a terrible researcher the digging is my least favourite bit Oh, I'd love it, I think. No, you'd love it. You'd love it. Going out and talking to people and finding out what those talking kind of... Talking to people who don't want to talk to you, though. Yeah, that must be difficult. God, how interesting. And that's a fresh air That's podcast. a fresh air. And he talks, okay, about, to that. he talks about how you have to embroider their emotions. You have to guess as close as you can as how they were feeling. Has and he what met those the royal family? Does he talk about... Because I'm yes. often interested. A lot of people who write a lot about the royal family are either loathed by the royal family because sometimes it can border on being quite salacious like James Hewitt and all that kind of ongoing and Paul Burrell you know where they've had they've had these kind of brief interludes of time with them and then just proved to be so 
crude and crass in the way that they relay that information about their time in the royal family is does he how does he kind of talk about his relationship with them for want of a better word well he's not like a Julian Fellows I think I was expecting a man who was sort of obsessed and fetishised yes. um, the royal loyalist. family or the well, I don't think so he's very dry he's quite cynical he's very funny and he he says that he's met the royal family on a number of occasions, but not in the capacity as a, as researching them, just at, at you know events or honorary events or whatever. But he said he I think what he basically said was if you don't hear from Clarence House, then you sort of assume that that it's fine. I do think it must be so weird for them with the crown. I they I just do don't think watch there it, are I they do think there it. are ethical questions. Weirdly I was talking to my aunt about this at Christmas. So I do think there are ethical questions of of delving into someone's life like that without permission while they're still alive. I I do think it's a bit it must be so odd for I them. love the crown. I absolutely love the crown. I swallow up every series and I think are it's beautifully there, made. I know this is awful. I still haven't watched it and it really is on my to-do list. Are there references to things that have been alleged? Yes, yes. So, so like, there's a whole narrative strand in the second series about whether Prince Philip had affairs or not. I was about to yeah. say, so does it have Prince yeah. Philip's affairs? But anyway, that was a very... Um, yeah, sounds really interesting. That was Thank a really interesting that. interview. And then finally, boy, have I got a treat for you. <laughs> David Remnick interviews David Attenborough. Oh, two heavenly voices at it once. It was so heavenly. And they've uh, edited it so well. And at the beginning, you hear David Attenborough like fussing around with his but hearing also, aid. I can't imagine David Attenborough in New York. No, it's a phone interview. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a gorgeous interview. David Remnick's editor of The New Yorker. He's my favourite David. And then David Attenborough obviously is everyone else's favourite David. My favourite David. That's They're probably wonderful. my joint favourite Davids. <laughs> <laughs> tongue twister that. Um, but that it's just a beautiful, lovely conversation about um, David Attenborough's most recent series, and also what he has learnt about human life through the natural world. To start this conversation, I'm a confirmed city boy. I I go by the um, the terrible rubric of I am at two with nature. Nature is not something that's natural to me. Even I mean, the... but then I'm the same. I'm a city boy. I was brought up in the city in Leicester, in the middle of England. Um, and perhaps it's, it is the city people who haven't grown up uh, with the natural world as intimately as country boys uh, for whom that perception of awe comes as so bewitching uh, an emotion, a response. Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From maps to email, search and beyond, Google has a history of looking at the norm and finding a better way. Each week we are going to do a curiosity challenge where we pose a question to one another which encompasses the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the personal to the philosophical to the surreal. This week my question to you, Dolly, is, in light of your Forbes 30 under 30 in media and marketing achievement. <laughs> I am nothing if not your own personal humble bragger. You always brag on my behalf. It's really nice. It's a really nice quality as a friend. I also find it just quite fun and funny. In light of it, what does success look like to you? Good question. Does it wear red shoes? The success to me looks like feeling fulfilled and like I'm being entirely myself and my integrity is intact with the work that I create. 
it also means having a lovely home. So that's what it looks like. That's so the what, first sorry. is what it feels that's what it like. Feels like the second is it looks like blankets and lamps. It looks like having a even just a teeny tiny home that I can call my own, like a safe space, a safe sanctuary of mine, and it means being able to get myself out of sticky situations whenever I can, normally with a taxi. So success is safety and security for yourself and your loved ones. Yes. The Google Pixel 2 is the world's best smartphone, capturing your best ever photos, whether you're in bright light or dark evenings, so starry nights look as good as sunny days. Thank you very much to the Google Pixel 2. It's now time for the top line, read by Dolly, Hannah Alderton. Searching I am Pigs being reared for meat at a rural school have been sent back to their original owner after a vegan parent complained. Priestland School has kept animals at its site in Hampshire to teach pupils about farming for the past 10 years. However, a petition calling for them to be saved has been signed more than 41,000 times. Animal rights activist Ed Winter said, We should be teaching children compassion towards animals. The school has made students and parents uncomfortable by discriminating against their beliefs by condemning these pigs to death. Jermaine Greer is in trouble again. The famous feminist dismissed the Me Too movement as whinging. If you spread your legs because he said, be nice to me and I'll give you a job in a movie, then I'm afraid that's tantamount to consent, she said. And it's too late now to start whinging about that. She also said that she was disappointed that the movement was failing to address the abuse of minority women in ordinary jobs. People visiting sexual health clinics in London are being told they have to wait for up to nine hours for a test. Last year, six sexual health clinics closed in London, leaving services struggling to cope. These clinics don't just provide routine STI testing, but are also often responsible for spotting the signs of abuse, trafficking, and they offer specialist counselling services for survivors of sexual assault and child exploitation. Ahead of his retrial in April, the comedian and alleged rapist Bill Cosby has returned to the stage. On Monday night, he performed a short set to a crowd in Philadelphia of scat singing and drum playing. Since 2015, Cosby's had 57 allegations of sexual abuse lodged against him. There's some strange news in the world of vintage children's TV. The man who played Barney the Purple Dinosaur has his own tantric sex business. <laughs> David Joyner runs a tantric massage service that boasts 30 clients who he calls goddesses. He charges $350 for a three to four hour session. And now for some sad news in the world of vintage children's TV. Actor Simon Shelton, who voiced Tinky Winky, the purple Teletubby, has died. The four spongy creatures first came to our screens over 20 years ago in 1997. Henry Bolton, the leader of UKIP, is refusing to resign despite ongoing fury at racist comments made by his 25-year-old ex-girlfriend, despite the fact that many leading party officials have resigned in protest. Repatriation of Rohingya refugees to Myanmar has been halted in fear that many refugees would be forced to return to places where they would not be safe. In a deal announced by Myanmar in November of last year, 650,000 Rohingya Muslims were to be gradually returned from Bangladesh starting on Tuesday of this week after they fled the country formerly known as Burma to escape ethnic cleansing. 
Microbeads, tiny pieces of plastic in your face wash designed to help remove dead skin, have finally been banned after much coverage on how they are the world's most harmful type of plastic. The import of beauty products containing microbeads is now illegal. One of the country's top boarding schools has banned relationships. If you have one, you have to leave. The Cambridge-educated 45-year-old Toby Belfield, headmaster at Ruthin School, says school is not the place for romance, ever. And that was the top line. Searching high and So I was at a single sex school and I am straight. So the opportunity for romance was scant on the mm. ground, to say the mm. least. Did you have romance when you were at a co-ed boarding school? Yeah. Um, did I have romance? No, because all the boys found me hideous. But it was, it was. No, no they did, but it's fine. Um <laughs> There was a lot of romance. I think this school. man is slightly insane. Well, school also, is not the place for romance ever. I also think, as well, ironically, the time in my life where I was so consumed by boys was when I was at an all girls school. And the minute I got to a co ed school, that's pretty realized common. They all well, that. You're, yeah. you're fetishizing the un- unknown. Exactly. I exactly. used to do that. But I do think this man, I was quite interested to read that he was only 45. I was like, dear God, Toby. You are too young I mean, to be espousing such incredibly archaic I views. mean, I think it is something about boarding school. My boarding school got into the news a few years ago because two young um, ruffians were, were shagging on the sacred field where rugby as a sport was conceived, which is the school I went to was rugby school. And um, it was at night time and I think one of the sort of old duffer masters literally stumbled across I, them. No, I do understand that, uh, like, constant shag- shaggery is mm. frustrating maybe for professors when, when you're 17, 18 and you are primarily there to learn. Mm. Do understand that. I think that expelling people... I think it's absurd. ...who aren't constantly boning on sacred ground. Yeah, but I also think it's, like, deeply patronising and dismissive. Like, you're allowed to have... It's just too... ...romantic inclination and romantic feelings yeah. when you're a teenager. Like, I, I used to drive it's me too mad hard when I was a teenager when I felt like I was seen as sort of subhuman because you're not yet 18, as we'll find out on our next topic. Those boundaries mean nothing, really. Absolutely. Um, devastating about sexual health clinics. I can't believe people are queuing for nine hours. I know. That's I know. absolutely extraordinary. On the Germaine Greer point, I just want to say I agree with her that the movement has been failing to address the abuse of minority women in ordinary jobs. That's why the Time's Up fund, legal fund, is much more valuable mm. than the dresses because... Taylor Swift's one million dollars will go towards sexual assault and sexual equality and mm. all all of mm. those um, things that stop us being equal to men. Basically, they will address all those things because actually, what you need is money. And I yeah. was listening to I think it might have been Call Your Girlfriend where they were saying, you know, what as a celebrity, you don't have to give a fuck. Okay, you don't have to have an opinion. Just mm. give your money because yeah. a lot can be done yeah. with your money. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week, psychologists have announced they believe something I've long suspected. You are not an adult until you're 25. That's right. Adolescence actually lasts from the age of 10 to 24. This bit I find pretty mind-blowing. This new revelation in the world of psychology means that child psychologists now work with patients aged 0 to 25. So you could be 25 and you'd go see a child psychologist rather than 0 to 18. Neuroscience has now shown that the brain continues to develop in this later stage of adolescence from the ages of 18 to 25 and that a young person's emotional maturity, judgment and self-awareness will all be affected until the prefrontal cortex of the brain has fully developed. Pandora, were you surprised by this? All I could think was so many laws to change. Everything in the Western world is legally constructed around you being an adult light mm, that's when true. you are 16, mm. i.e. you can have sex, have a baby, and an adult proper when you are 18. How do you begin to dismantle that cultural and legal system? I have to say I'm not surprised about this at all. Only now I'm nearly out of the other side of my 20s do I realise that I was basically still behaving in a very adolescent way up until I was 25, which is to say self-absorbed, impulsive, catastrophizing, irrational, right up until my 26th birthday almost, I can see that my life was much more full of those kind of personality traits. In fact, I really noticed it when I was writing my memoir because annoyingly, you have to tell the truth in a memoir. So even though you're writing your experiences retrospectively, you have to capture exactly who you were at that moment and what your thought processes were and what your decision making was. And when I go back to anything that was kind of 25 or earlier, when I revisit how I was behaving or when I read my old diaries or my notebooks, or even when I was looking at my tweets, there was such a marked difference in how I viewed the world and what I thought was an appropriate reaction to things. No, I'm not surprised either in that I always think of people under the age of 25 as babies and I was certainly, like you, a baby until then. That's not to dismiss brilliant women under that age. There are women fully matured with incredible ideas from Malala to writers like Tavi Jevonson and June Erica Dory. But in general, that's how I think. But I have to say, I always thought that that came of privilege of mm. having someone to go to somewhere to go to someone to support me if needs be I didn't think that this would be say a neurologically and societally recognized thing I remember once reading years and years ago that an adult's brain doesn't develop to a point of being able to feel full empathy until he or she is 25 and I think that makes total sense the whole prison of being a teenager is that your world both physically and emotionally and compassionately ends about 20 inches outside of your physical being you're completely introspective you're so absorbed and preoccupied with your own life and your own relationships and family and feelings and thoughts it doesn't even occur to you to open out and open up to everything the world has to offer certainly with me even when I thought I was opening up to all that stuff I, I actually wasn't really at all I wouldn't say I wholesale agree with that, given the great work done by some women younger than the age of 25, where empathy is a mandatory and key requirement for their work. But certainly, I agree with you, we speak of the optimism of youth a lot more than we consider the 
lack of empathy of mm. of youth. I tell you where I noticed this recently was walking through a bunch of sixth formers who were 17, 18. I say walking, I mean waddling. Now, when you get to your 38th trimester, people tend to be very jumpy around you. Mm. They give you space. They are pretty deferential. But this group of male and female 18-year-olds didn't give a toss. They didn't move to accommodate me. They didn't show any interest or acknowledgement in my different physical state which is something that adults immediately clock you always notice that kind of pregnant women moving through and I've noticed this on the tube too students so legally adults never jump to give me their seat it's always people slightly older now I'm not suggesting that I am interesting by dint of having a baby but Mm. there was just no awareness Mm. or empathy for other Mm. in that in the way that there is when you get a bit older and you understand people in their different capacities Mm. a bit more I mean it goes without saying the next sentence but I'm no scientist (laughs) But I do wonder if this is a product of evolution and our brains are slowing down the speed of maturation because the speed of our physical lives and its development are slowing down so much. Well, we live so, so much longer, so surely everything needs to be stretched out a Exactly. Bit so for our parents' generation and above, 25 was the time you were married with your first mortgage and probably your first baby. 25 for me was the time I was single, i just joined Tinder, I was living below squatters in a mouse-infested house and ringing my (laughs) landlord begging to pay rent late that month. Lots has been said about why we have this extended state of adolescent sort of irresponsibility to our mid-20s, some may even argue until our late-20s, early-30s. People have suggested it might be the housing market crisis so none of us can buy houses. Is it the culture of having too much choice so we can't commit to a lifestyle or relationships? But as you mentioned, I think it's simply because we're living longer. So the phases of our lives lengthen proportionally. So I do bandy this this stat around a lot, but it still blows my mind. 25% of girls born in the year I was born in will live until they're 100 years old. I've never heard you bandy it around. That's oh, I use it quite a lot in pieces. But I, I think that's, that's crazy. That's a huge advancement mm. on life expectancy from recent generations. So with that in mind, 50 is now sort of considered middle-aged. When you imagine a middle-aged man, that's normally what Mm -hmm. he looks like. For a long time, your 30s were middle-aged. You know, we wouldn't have been far off middle-aged. In fact, some of my favourite books and plays that have been written in the 80s and 90s, I noticed it in Martin Amos's Money and in Patrick Marber's Closer, written relatively not that long ago, they reference 35 as being half-time. And I think an extended childhood is just a product of this kind of new world of life expectancy that we live in generally speaking loosely connected to this i was staggered when someone reminded me via the radio that Meghan markle is almost the age princess diana was when she died oh my god and if you think this is one woman coming into the royal yeah. family and it was another woman well not exiting the royal family ex- exiting very sadly this world yeah. but that feels extraordinary in the mm. differences in their scenarios i 1000 percent agree with you on that It's also, of course, important to point out that my experience or Pandora's experience is not everyone's experience of being in their 20s. Also, I I must point out, I'm not saying that I believe that people under the age of 25 are emotionally stunted. or Hoodlums, all of you, go away. Or that anything they have to say or their work is defunct. That would have really angered me. I don't believe that at all. As you said, some of my favourite people and creators are under the age of 25. I was 25 a handful of years ago. And also some people are still very much settled or with a family before they're 25. 
some people view 25 as being kind of tits deep into adulthood. In fact, I think this is a timely news story as only last week there was a bit of a discussion about what age makes a responsible adult when Refinery29 published a 26-year-old's money diary entry as part of a series they do in which people record their income and spendings over the course of the week. Did you read this, Panda? Yes. This does perhaps chime with that piece of saying that neurologically we are children until we're 25. Although, I wouldn't say that irresponsibility is something that's necessarily in tandem with being a child. Perhaps you can still be an adult and make make bad choices. Definitely. So the piece that Dolly's referring to is a money diary of a 26-year-old woman who is living on £14,000 a year in London. We'll link this in the show notes. The annual London living wage, not minimum, the living wage is the wage that denotes the ability to live a basically good life in London, is just under 20000 So it's impossible for this girl to make her finances work. She's, you know, falling almost six grand beneath that and also making some less vital lifestyle choices. Anyway, there's been a lot of chuckling and eye-rolling and this girl is my hero or I knew this girl or I was this girl as she spends the little money she does have on snacks and cocaine. And Ubers. And Ubers. But to be honest, I just couldn't work out why she didn't get a second job. And sorry, old lady here, why the hell is she spending 70 quid on cocaine? Well, I preemptively swooped to the defence of this woman because I just anticipated a slew of think pieces in which 40-something journalists condemned an entire generation for being reckless and irresponsible. I've become perhaps a little defensive about this recently, but I've noticed there's this current climate we're in where we decide the goodness and the measure of a person by how entirely sanitised and by the book their behaviour is. I think it's what happens in a world where... Your personality is worn as this sort of boastful badge of honour to show what a woke and enlightened and amazing person you are. And I think that's to make sure that you're sufficiently armoured and shielded and protected from these claws of constant judgement and shaming, which could be coming for any of us at any given moment. So I tweeted... She has all the time in the world to learn self-care and self-awareness and self-respect. Who wants to pass the 100% woke test in their mid-twenties? Let the silly woman down two bottles of Prosecco and sing along to Magic FM with the Uber driver, for God's sake. Which mainly got a response of agreement, but then one of my favourite tweeters, who's the brilliant journalist Marie Leconte, replied, I absolutely don't think she should get digital pitchforked over her lifestyle, but 26 is not that young, in my opinion. I know we all grow up at our own rhythm, but she's not 19. At which point I did think age is such an individual, environmental and circumstantial thing. Also, some people don't have a choice as well. Being adolescent until you're 25 is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Some people find themselves in a tragic circumstance as a teenager where they have to suddenly become the parents of their siblings. There are a lot of circumstances that mean people don't get an adolescence at all, let alone up until the age of 25. I don't think... It's really to do with her being woke in her mid-twenties. She could be super woke about political issues and cultural happenings. I think it's literally just lacking responsibility for yourself. That's an interesting response from Marie. I think a lot of people would agree with her. 26 isn't that young. I do hear what you say about judgment and self-awareness, though. Do you think it touches a nerve for you? Do you think that, by extension even though you are a roaring success in your red heels, this money diary journalist reminds you a bit of your former self and your former self feels judged a bit. Not that you ever earned £14,000 age 26, because you didn't. You were always much more fiscally reliable. But for her choices, I'm just interested to know if there's some personal in there that you could share about feeling defensive of her being judged. 
Uh, that's a good question. I think, as you said, I was never that reckless with money, only because I am extremely anxious and I would worry about what would happen if I ran out of money and I didn't have any other emergency economic support. Mm-hmm. If I ran out of money at any time, you know, in my 20s, that was it. So um, I think, I don't think it's even about age. I think I feel that we're in a world where we now discard a lot of personality traits such as frivolity or being childlike or hedonistic or, you know, being a bloody bon viveur or flaneur as as being unsavory or it's not cool or it's not quite or it's not or it's embarrassing or it's not quite right on enough. And I don't like that level of judgment that comes with it. Not everyone will be a campaigner or a spokesperson in life. Not everyone will be into to like wellness or mindfulness. <laughs> not everyone needs to buy a house or even have a tidy house or have children or have a family. Um just as lives are just as valid if they're small and contained, lives are messy as well. Mm-hmm. And and we don't all need to have these perfect trajectories. I think maybe I don't like that it feels like insidiously we're creating templates for human life that I think don't really encompass human fallibility or flaws or quirks or foibles that also have been the makeup of some of our most creative and brilliant and intelligent minds. I love a bon viveur and a flaneur. <laughs> For me, where I'm coming from, I don't take umbrage with her piece based on how sanitised her choices are. And I'm not unsympathetic to her. Mm. It's horrendous that she's earning £14,000 a year, age 26. She can't live on that. In London, I, there's no way she can live on that. But I do think she should be living at home and getting a second job. I, I have to be honest, a, a part of adulthood is working out a way in which you can afford to live by doing the career that you want. And at 26, if you're still earning £14,000, it was just frustrating to read because I think you have to look at supplementing your career or choosing another career unless, putting it brutally, you have a partner to support you. And if you do, great. There's nothing wrong with that. It's up to you how you make your life work. If you want to rely on on someone else for money, that's fine. But I think it it felt difficult to to read kind of, oh, no, I've got no money, but I'm also happily earning £14,000. But maybe part of me finding it frustrating reading comes not from her own money diary, but from how appallingly paid freelance writing is. It's something you and I often discuss, Dolly, because even though we describe ourselves as full-time journalists the bulk of our money does not come from writing no totally and it's something that I say every time I speak to young people who want to be journalists now you've got to be entrepreneurial you've got to really think laterally of how you can make money but maybe that girl will learn that in due course and maybe she won't. Maybe she'll be a hot mess forever. And I think that's sort of fine as well, as long as she's not hurting anyone. Either way, Dolly would like to go for a drink with you. <laughs> Get in touch with us, money diary girl. <laughs> what do you think? Are you 25 and consider yourself to be not adolescent at all? Or are you 35 and would still enlist the help of a child psychologist? <laughs> Email us, show at gmail.com or tweet us at show and let us know. from the high low comes from Treatwell, the brighter way to book beauty and it happens our favourite way to book treatments. Using Treatwell is simple and easy. You can browse online or on the app to find your nearest salon all across the UK and Ireland too, using hundreds of reviews to help you pick the best place for you. Book beauty where you want, when you want. Would you call yourself a sucker for a bargain, Dolly? I would. In fact, I've been known to stand outside Itsu waiting for the half-price sushi sale that happens every (laughs) evening. Every evening, you just have to be patient. 
then you'll be pleased to know that if you're savvy with your Treatwell bookings, you could save up to 50% off. Booking a cheap beauty treatment is much like booking a holiday on a budget. You have to avoid the crowds and avoid popular peak times. So search on Treatwell and book at a quieter time in the salon for a three-star price at a five-star venue. I know where I'll see you at 5am on a Tuesday, getting your tash waxed in uh, London's trendy Soho. Maybe not quite that early, Dolly. That is what I would call a top tip. And here is a promo code for Hilo listeners. You get £10 off your first £25 booking. Just add the code HILO10 at the checkout. H-I-G-H-L-O-W-10. Thank you for the top tip, Pandora. And thank you very much to Treatwell. From prolonged kid adulthood to loneliness. Late last week, Theresa May announced Britain's new Minister for Loneliness to tackle the sad reality of modern life. The Loneliness Project was first started by the late Joe Cox, who was tragically stabbed in 2016. Last year, a commission set up to honour the late MP revealed that nine million British people suffer from chronic loneliness. Conservative politician Tracy Crouch, also the Minister for Sport and Civil Society, has now assumed the role as Minister of Loneliness and she says that she is proud to take on the generational challenge of loneliness, both young and old. What do you think, Dolly? I think this is a brilliant move. I think it's such an epidemic, not just in this country, but in modern life and I'm so glad that it's being taken seriously. I think it's a really key bit that Tracy says there, the generational challenge of young and old, because loneliness is often presumed to be a condition of the elderly. They've lost their partner, perhaps they're less mobile, people stop visiting. And that tragic stereotype is not without value. Age UK are constantly sharing devastating facts about loneliness in old age. But that is just one form of loneliness. Loneliness is not a one size fits all. You can be physically lonely, you can be mentally lonely, you can be emotionally lonely and so on and so forth. I watched a documentary a few years ago that completely haunts me to this day. I think it might be the most profound and affecting documentary I've ever watched, actually. It was called Dreams of a Life. Have you watched it? No. It's it's very powerful and very disturbing. It's about perishing through loneliness, quite literally. A director, Carol Morley, read a news story about a 38-year-old woman named Joyce Vincent, whose remains were found in her flat three years after she died and her TV was still on. She goes back through the life of this woman, piecing together her past, interviewing people who knew her and working out how a human who had long-term relationships, friends, family, a great career can fall through society's cracks like this. It really changed my attitude to how I treat people who I think are lonely or who give the impression that they might be lonely, be it an elderly neighbour or a sort of mad woman you always see at the shop who's always desperate to talk or whatever Mm -hmm. you never know how deep that isolation runs in their life and also we talk a lot about economic or racial or gender privilege but I think something we don't talk a lot about is social interpersonal privilege which is similarly just about luck you know how easy do you find it to make friends how are you socially who do you meet How do those bonds forge? How much family you have alive? The people that you have in your life? I consider myself to be incredibly privileged in that regard. And I'm very aware that that's not the normality for a lot of people. And we owe them our care and concern. You are very socially and personally privileged. And I love how unwieldy that is. (laughs) 
<laughs> would you say that you're socially and interpersonally privileged? I would, yeah. I'm going to put it in my bio. No, I would. I absolutely would. I really think about yeah, it and a you're lot. Right. I think... You're right that we don't talk about it. But what's interesting is me and you talk about it. Mm. We can always spot someone who we can tell struggles with so- social interpersonalism. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, trying to that, think of the name of them. Yeah, that it's a mixture of either they don't feel... We always feel, feel for them, yeah. Yeah, they don't feel comfortable themselves socially and therefore they find it difficult to create bonds. Or sometimes people just get unlucky. You know, you meet these people who just totally. go to university and they just don't make friends. They just don't find their people or, yeah. or they don't grow up with people at school. So, yeah, as I said, it's something we need to spend some time thinking about. More recently in fiction, this was explored so brilliantly with the novel Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, which explores loneliness and the funny but also incredibly sad story of how a woman ended up living a life of near total isolation. And the author said that she was actually inspired by this very thing when she read about the loneliness epidemic in Britain. It's had a huge response, Eleanor Oliphant. If you haven't yet read the debut novel by Gail Honeyman, please do. It's so affecting. I read it in one day Mm. and most recently my sister and my mother have also loved it. You know what? I was really surprised, given the vitriol of the internet, that no one has mocked the Minister for Loneliness. Not because it isn't a real and pressing issue, but because I thought that some cronies might say that it's a snowflake issue with a Harry Potter-ish sounding name. It is, actually. (laughs) Often emotional health gets neglected, at least it has historically in this country, so I'm so pleased that this has elicited such an overwhelming, if slightly intrigued, Mm. response. Here are a few light-hearted tweets that I enjoyed on the new um, appointment, one of which misses the point. Chris Hyde said, I can't work out why the government has only appointed one minister for loneliness. (laughs) And this one, the UK is now so bereft of empathy it needs a minister for loneliness, says more about people than government. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) As you said, I'm slightly staggered, but also very grateful that this hasn't been mocked more online. The problem is that this social privilege that I mentioned is like so many other privileges in life that once you have it, once you have security and fun and, and uh, you know, a crowd of people in your life or a family in your life, it can be very hard to imagine life any other way. Or maybe you don't even want to imagine life any other way and you don't want to then kind of extend your compassion. Of course, the obvious question is, how did we get to the point where nine million people feel so lonely? And I don't mean occasionally feel lonely. We all sometimes feel a bit low. I mean passionately. Pathologically so. The common belief is that the loneliness that is sort of suffusing right now is a direct result of neoliberalism, that the cultural idea of individualism, so of personal freedom and personal choice above the collective, has led to societal isolation. That might sound a bit academic and hokey, but it actually makes total sense when you break it down. I read a really interesting piece on The Guardian written by Stuart Dakers that attempted to sift through the myriad contributing factors of neoliberalism and loneliness and do just that. Stuart writes, There are some obvious pathogens, the deconstruction of community, the conversion of citizen into consumer, the politics of envy. We are no longer bowling together and family life has been unravelling for some time now. Since the 1980s, we've been gaining comfort from consumer materialism and convenience in exchange for our identity. The public square has become privatised and we have lived individual, unconnected lives behind locked doors and gated estates as we gorge on delivered groceries, box sets and just eat takeaways. From family to gang to clan to tribe to nation to federation. I just think 
it's he's put that so it's really clever he's put that so brilliantly and mm. definitely a key thing there is technology definitely definitely i think that's very interesting also a thing he mentions at the top is i think a lot of it is down to high-rise living and building communities up and on top of each other rather than side by side that's what people said about grenfell as well mm. is that it's it was much harder for the message um to spread about yeah, the fire yeah, because of course it's it's physically you're, you're, not, a, you're not a village going I think yeah. India Night wrote something very interesting on that actually yeah um, and I understand of course that's a necessary way to build housing in cities and, and create homes in cities but I do think it means you have less of an immediate connection the other question of course is where the hell does Tracy start I can't actually seem to find her agenda as it were, anywhere. So I guess we just have to wait and see what unfurls. I'm really interested to, to keep up with this one. Me too. And as you said, it's such a huge problem and so many different types of people face it. You do wonder where you would begin tackling it. But I really hope she comes up with some positive initiatives. It's now time for Ask the Hilo. Hi Dolly and Pandora, for as long as I can remember I've been a feminist loud and proud but now I'm dating a guy who won't describe himself as a feminist. What to do? We've only been dating for about a month but I really like him. He's a second generation Indian like me, smart, funny, kind, makes a huge effort, gets on well with my friends, cooks amazingly, the sex is fantastic. However, one drawback is that he says he won't describe himself as a feminist even though he says he believes in equal pay and non-discrimination. He also dropped the sizeable bombshell on our third date that we, he would want his wife to take his surname and for his kids to have his surname. As two feminists, what is your advice? Do I fall on my sword and drop this guy? Do I try and make him see the light? Or, having been single for years, do I take him as he is and accept that I am sacrificing some of my feminist values for a really great guy? Love, A.L., avid listener. Quick thoughts from you, Dolly. Quick thoughts. I think we become too obsessed with labels and it's kind of what I was saying earlier about wearing your personality and it's certain kind of labels to show what an amazing person you are you will know if he believes in equal rights you it's will that, know that he seems to, you're right he seems to have a problem with the label of feminist which is daft well, it's but, annoying but, but if he believes yeah, in think, if he believes that women are equal to men you've said that he believes in equal pay and non-discrimination great also i gotta say look i love i think it's great if a man calls him a feminist i also totally respect that a lot of men feel it's not really their word you know, like, do you yeah. know what? they feel a bit cringed out about it. They feel like that's not my word to use. Or they, or they query if they can be one. Yeah. You just have to look at what he's like in practice. Totally. I would also say, as a feminist but married, my husband, there was never... I didn't take his surname and he was fine with that, although most people still call me by his surname. But there wasn't any question of us double-barrelling our yeah. future daughter's name. That wasn't a conversation that... To be honest, it wasn't something I felt passionately about. I'm okay with her having his surname. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't think he would have been particularly up for that. And I don't think that that means that he's not a feminist or that he doesn't believe that, no. you know, he doesn't believe in equal pay. So I think we are at, and this is good to be having these conversations, but we are at this kind of forensic point with feminism where every box has to be ticked. Um, people aren't perfect. You sound like you really like him. You don't want to break up with him. I think it would be really sad if you broke up with him because he couldn't call himself... But how many people would go up to him anyway and be like, by the way, dude, would you call yourself feminist or not? Do you know what I mean? You, as you say, you see it in people's actions. And actually, the surname thing would uh, 
all he said is conversationally that's something that he thinks he would want he hasn't said like I'm laying down the law this is you are taking my name that for me would be a massive problem or the way he feels about the pay gap the way he would feel about you rearing your children you know the way he feels about sex all that stuff I would be like yeah that's a problem if you disagree in your action but not using that particular word I just I think I understand why you're raising the question, but I really don't think it's the most important thing. I also got the sense from your email that you felt like you should perhaps break up with him. Yeah, because he didn't want to call himself a feminist. And that's the sad thing a bit, that we are in a time where we're we're all a bit nervous. We are all a bit nervous of saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing and not being you know, woke enough to use that word and not doing this and not doing that. And it's, it's exhausting. We can't all be perfectly enlightened citizens all the time. It sounds like he's doing a pretty fucking great job. He's treating you well. He's acting like a feminist. Don't break up with him if you're happy. And also, case in point, Tony and Barbara Alderton. Tony is incredibly (laughs) right-wing, like terrifyingly right-wing, and wears blazers and plays cricket. Is he listening to this? God love him. Don't think so. Maybe he is. Hi, Dad. And what, like when my dad asked what the high-low was? (laughs) I still love that. And my mum is like a Canadian hippie who didn't wear shoes for all of the 70s and has been a Labour supporter. And they're blissfully happy. They're blissfully happy because even though they're not connected on certain policy decisions, everything they believe... Most... They believe in the same family. They believe in the same ethics and they yes. believe in the same theme park of right and wrong and they're very spiritually connected park, right and wrong so there you go that's a good go. note to, to end on <laughs> thank you very much for listening to the high low don't forget to rate review and subscribe on itunes it really helps us boost our ratings and it helps other people to find us you can email us the high show at gmail.com or you can tweet us at the high low show bye 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 <laughs>